Welcome to the Harvard on China podcast. I'm James Evans at the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies. Today's guest is Jennifer Alterhanger, Jessica Rawson Fellow in Modern Asian History and Associate Professor of Chinese History at the University of Oxford. Professor Alterhanger is a specialist in the history of materials and industrial design in Chinese politics and everyday life, the history of law, propaganda and information under Communist Party governance, and the history of political language and cultural production. She is the creator of an amazing digital resource entitled The Mao Era in Objects, which offers interactive biographies of primary sources from Maoist China. Her book and the topic of today's discussion is Legal Lessons, Popularizing Laws in the People's Republic of China, 1949 to 1989. The book explores the connection between laws, party state politics, and everyday life in the People's Republic. Published by Harvard University Asia Center Press in 2018, it is now available in paperback. Jennifer Alderhanger, welcome to the Harvard on China podcast. Thank you for having me. Your latest book is called Legal Lessons about the dissemination of law in China. Why should we be interested in legal dissemination? Isn't this just another form of propaganda? <laughs> well, the question, isn't this just another kind of propaganda, is a question that's been with me since I started this project. And, you know, every now and then, even with a finished book, it's a finished book doesn't mean the questions are all answered. And so it's still on my mind. Um, the book is my first attempt to give an answer, but it's sort of a continuing concern of mine. Now, one of the fascinating things about the question, isn't this just propaganda like any other kind of propaganda, is that the people I was reading about and studying in uh, writing this book and researching for this book, including cultural workers, editors, artists, publishers, propaganda officials, publishing officials, party and uh, government officials, they actually had exactly the same problem. They were trying to figure out, well, if we disseminate law via propaganda, if we call it law propaganda, which was a term um, that became more and more frequent in the 1950s. Today, it is a standard formulation, a TIFA. And they were asking themselves, well, is there anything that's different about this? What is different about it? How do we produce what they call correct law propaganda? Um, how do we make use of the repertoires we have for making different forms and varieties of propaganda to fit law? Is there a difference of showing correct and incorrect behavior and lawful and unlawful behavior? And I've tried to trace this in the book. We see in this phase between 1950 and 1953-54, especially 1954, which is the year in which uh, there is a national discussion of the state constitution draft. And we see in these sort of four years, more and more internal discussions that really say, well, law propaganda is going to be different. It is going to require um, a different, uh, or at least an amended way of making, say, propaganda images, ex educational images. It's going to require us to explain, not interpret, and that was an important distinction because interpretation was up to state organs, but explanation was what cultural uh, products were meant to do. It's going to require us to come up with a way of explaining laws that sticks closely to the text of the law, um, doesn't veer off entirely, but on the other hand, makes law in some way relatable 
so that people can actually imagine, and this was important because law propaganda served explicitly to politicize laws, to make them political, to show how uh, laws were to be a weapon of the people. So how can we come up with designs of this kind of, say, explanatory images of law that link both the content of legal articles to this broader vision we have for a new China, how people will look, how they will behave, and how can we situate this in sort of in a context in which it's all about lawful behavior. So one of the issues you just touched on is that tension between making a law accessible, but not allowing people to interpret it in a way that is not the same as what the party would interpret it. And we have that tension between making a law clear and accessible, but it leaves space for vagueness, and that, you know, is warrant to interpretation. We see it a lot in America when it comes to laws being interpreted, thinking of amendments of the Constitution, for example. How did they go about making laws accessible, but not interpreted by people who are not the party? So I think one of the key differences or at least where one can make a distinction between what was happening in China and also in other uh, state socialist systems, is that interpretation is built into the legal system. You're meant to be able to personally interpret, say, if we now read laws, there, there is this level of personal interpretation is absolutely a part of the system, and then that gets mediated through various legal channels and the legal possibilities that citizens have. The interesting thing is that the party state in China was quite keen to try and mediate that the way in which people understood laws in the moment they were learning about them as a way of trying to, if not control, at least prevent certain kinds of possible responses and to what they called uh, so I don't want to make an individual collective argument, but in, in this moment they talked about two personal and individualistic interpretations of a lo- broader law that was not just about what you personally wanted, but also about how society at large uh, was meant to look like. Now, one of the things the CCP had done from quite early on is to try and actually write laws in a way that they could be what they felt was a way in which laws would be accessible, namely to use, again, what they felt it didn't turn out to necessarily be as accessible, but what they felt was the vernacular Um, language of the people, uh, easily accessible grammatical structures using terms that weren't highly formal, but sort of everyday terms, still meant that lots of people didn't understand what these terms meant. But the idea was uh, of the drafters to make this as grassroots as they possibly could. They also made uh, laws quite vague. Now, making a vague law has, of course, an advantage because it leaves a lot of space for interpretation. And that space for interpretation was one that I think the parties, the state availed itself of repeatedly. It was often in the positive, it was explained as being flexible and flexibility was good since China was, of course, a changing society and that flexibility would be necessary. But while vagueness and flexibility and simplicity, of course, had certain advantages for those who wanted to use the law. Also, this vagueness, simplicity was something that people, when they read the law, would make use of and say, well, wait, I I see this right. Doesn't that mean for my personal life that I can do this? And so as these kinds of what Michael Schoenhaus has called mood reports were coming in, reporting on how people had responded to the law, and there were lots of these, I have found documents that show how sort of national level authorities then said, okay, we need to do something. We need to write these directives. We need to 
uh, rein these interpretations in and they try to instruct local departments of uh, local propaganda departments um, with guidelines on you know how to write things how to produce propaganda materials and so gradually the idea of making laws accessible to all becomes also an extremely important channel of mediating what laws would mean and controlling what correct and incorrect interpretations are. So the very same channel meant to make available knowledge becomes the channel to shape it, mold it, control it, um, and, and somehow keep keep a handle on it. And I found that process very interesting and you can trace it in the documents. Yeah, And you make a very interesting connection that is also available in the documents between mass campaigns and campaigns, dissemination of law, and also the dissemination of science. So during the early PRC, how do we popularise science or how do we make science available to the masses follows a similar but different trajectory. So popularising science, and I think Secret Tomasa's work has shown very clearly, was institutionalised within the party-state bureaucracy from a really early point on. It was easier to situate within the early PRC state. Popularization of law, partly because different groups and different individuals within the within the CCP, but also within government, not everybody was a party member. Clearly, uh, the popularization of law was less easy to situate because it wasn't at all clear what role laws would have in the new state. And so if it's not clear what role laws were supposed to have in a new state and there are differing opinions, then law popularization cannot become a clear practice. And so we see this push and pull. How much do we need? Um, How much do we need to disseminate laws? usually going hand in hand with discussions about, well, how many laws do we actually need and how should they look like and how involved should we be and do we even need them at all? And so one of the remarkable things um, or remarkable things for me was the comparative absence, for instance, of Mao Zedong in this story. He was he just Mao doesn't really figure so much. Other people do. Um, and that was partly because that wasn't what he was most interested in. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm fairly sure he largely thought you could just dispense of laws altogether. But there were others, many of whom actually had been educated or had influenced by both uh, the nationalist legal culture as well as the Soviet Union. Um, they believed quite strongly that even the socialist system needs a legal basis and uh, both for legitimacy but also to govern and so I think this push and pull that's going on between different voices then means law popularization doesn't quite become as formulated as it does by the 1980s. So one of the modes of disseminating law is also through popular media I guess Mm -hmm. we would call it and that depends on context or you can use you can use the term popular if you mean it to um and they use it a lot um to mean mass rather than everybody loves it oh yes i'm not sure everybody would be keen on yeah so maybe we'll say yeah (laughs) they won't um so popularization of what it means to follow a law or what how a law should be interpreted is obviously something we still see today i mean america you know we have tv shows like law and order that while not government back to sort of popularise certain laws, have the similar effect of, you know, putting the judiciary on a pedestal or, you know, you have savvy lawyers that are TV stars because they manage to sort of help their client or however it is. Are there equivalents in either the Chinese case or in the rest of the socialist world? For example, uh, in the anti-corruption campaign, we'll see television shows that highlight you know, the corrupt local official being caught by the good police officer. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Is that a theme that sees echoes in the past, particularly in the socialist world? Definitely. So, for one, wonderful work has been done by uh, scholars such as uh, Mary Gallagher, Daniela Stockman, Kevin O'Brien on uh, the popularization of law and also sort of the consequences we get. discussions of rights consciousness, but then also, as Elizabeth Perry has called it, rules consciousness for the uh, 1990s and 2000s and for contemporary China. And uh, many of the, by now actually, very often quite advanced, elaborate, and as Daniela Stockman and Mary Gallagher have argued, pleasing for general audiences, popular uh, sort of cultural products have counterparts in the 1950s. Think of theatre plays, um, operas, which, as, at least as archival documents, for instance, from the Shanghai Municipal Archives indicated, were crowd pleasers. Whether people went to look at these plays because they really wanted to know about laws, I'm fairly sure that was not the major driver. But, you know, this stuff still got audiences. Um, and, and the logic was, well, even if they don't come for that reason, they'll still get that message somehow as part of what they are watching. Now, The 1970s and 1980s in this way are a really interesting moment for propaganda in general, but definitely also for law propaganda because the increasing state use of new media such as TV, films um, and other formats really shapes how law propaganda can be conducted. And so we start seeing bureaus of justice investing in uh, entertainment TV and, and films that will, you know, have this law and order um, narrative, but in a way that fits very nicely with the rest of the law propaganda agenda. We have that in China, um, but then when I was doing work also looking at cases of the popularization of law outside of China, which becomes quite common in the 1970s and 1980s in the Soviet Union, in particularly in places like Poland, Hungary, um, the German Democratic Republic. There too, I was starting to see officials at the Ministry of Justice, for instance, writing scripts for TV series and, and, and talking to film producers and saying, you know, how, how do we need to, not merely what kind of narratives do we need, but what should the props be? How should it look like? How do we make this proper in the sense that it represents the socialist vision of everyday life into which law propaganda is then, the law propaganda message is then imbued, if that's the right term for it. Um, now, for anybody who wants to look at examples of this, I can recommend, um, which is available on YouTube, and they're fantastic Chinese examples. If, if somebody's also interested in Eastern European examples, there's the famous East German Polizeiruf 110, which translates roughly as emergency call, police emergency call 110. That's sort of the number you dial if you need to get straight through to the police. And this is a fantastic example of law propaganda that turns more popular than its creators anticipated because that series exists today in unified, reunified Germany. And while lots of people, um, I think it used to be maybe every week or even more often uh, than that and lots and lots of people across Germany would sit down and watch this most being completely unaware of the fact that what they were watching had once been um, the uh, poster child of uh, GDR uh, law propaganda um, and uh, equally popular at the time. Um, Now at some point I decided you want to have moments in research when you're not just looking at documents but you're getting something that's a little bit more fun and you're getting sort of a sense of what this material was like and so I thought this is on YouTube, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to watch one of these. And I happened to come across one that was filmed in 1990. So just 
in that moment, it's after the fall of the Berlin Wall, but before the full reunification of Germany. So a really interesting uh, moment in time. And so I started, this was 11 p.m., I started watching this, and it was the story of the uh, mysterious death of small children in their homes while the parents had been away, um, having strangled themselves with telephone cords. And by the way, for any viewer, this is going to get slightly creepy now. Viewer, Um, listener warnings. (laughs) um, And so there had been these series of young children dying in their homes when their parents were gone, and the police, these very... Uh, conscientious police officers they start investigating and they're absolutely confounded they take every possible technological step to find out so this modern forensics as it's available to find out what's going on there presuming some sort of really elaborate thing is going on and eventually we meet this um who turns out to be the killer this man who is a young man around say 1920 um who is uh, deeply confused and deeply impressed by the fall of the wall he was completely into buying uh, you know west german consumer products spends far too much money constantly gets scolded by his mother for that feels deeply conflicted where he belongs and as it turns out in the end um, one of the ways in which apparently he finds some sort of solace um tra- horrific solace is by observing these young families with children locating where they live waiting for the parents to leave the house then calling up uh, these small children from a telephone booth outside of what is you know so your classic socialist um neighborhood of high risers and getting these small children to commit suicide or kill their siblings and by the end of watching that you know i had thought this was going to be some you know educational material where right and wrong was everything was fairly easy to tell and I turned off the TV and I thought oh my god that is just it, it hadn't even occurred to me that that would be law propaganda because it was so complex on so many levels it was not an easy straightforward story it was a complex individual torn between consumerist desires and this this wish to inflict pain not knowing where he belonged to his family not knowing where his place in the state was and the overarching message was that largely the state in this transition had failed this person and that you know, more education, more more security, more vigilance of the mother, all sorts of factors. And we see this actually in law propaganda in China as well. Sort of the society, the family, the state, all acting together to keep what was particularly in the 1980s a, a group of concern for state officials, young people, impressionable by consumerism, not knowing where they should go, to somehow keep them in check. Um, so it can only, I mean, it's harrowing, but uh, if you want to see a real example of how on the one hand, bestseller, and on the other hand, harrowing example, I can only recommend it. And I think, like we said earlier, we maybe should have put a warning in at the beginning of yes, this interview. <laughs> yes, but, a warning. <laughs> yes, not for the faint-hearted. Too detailed? <laughs> no, it's totally fine. Um, so to sort of change tack slightly, um, so this is your first book from your dissertation, yes. um, and we were very fortunate to have you here at the Fairbank Centre a few years ago as an unmong postdoctoral fellow. What were the biggest challenges for you in transforming your dissertation into a book? And I ask this because we have many listeners who are either at graduate school in the PhD process or who have just left that to go on to become junior faculty or researchers elsewhere, um, who are sort of trying to work out similar problems. So my doctoral thesis was a study of just the marriage law, just the early 1950s. It was not a broader study of law propaganda. And as I finished the dissertation, I 
slowly but surely started to realize that. Well, I'd known this was a broader story that goes into the 1980s, but I also realized there was a broader international history to this kind of law propaganda. And I realized, well, what I had worked on really was at best a puzzle piece. And that's when a uh, a very long journey began trying to figure out, well, in what sort of a framework do I want to fit this puzzle piece? What's the larger picture of which this puzzle piece is a part? I went back repeatedly to China to look for new documents. I found significantly more so-called also internal, only for internal circulation documents. I had looked at many of them, but I found even more as I looked at uh, the state constitution. That was a completely new case study that took several years to work my way into. I was also lucky to be able to access archival documents from 1970 on an often overlooked discussion of the state constitution that was eventually aborted. I got access to late 70s and 1980s documents, which I hadn't had and, and didn't even know I would be able to get them. So that was a very nice surprise. And it included many of the same kinds of responses that I'd seen for the early 1950s. So Cadre sitting down trying to write up how uh, group discussions of the constitution draft had gone, who would then and these documents, they seem very easy to read because your official sits down and says intellectuals responded in this way and workers responded in this way and students responded in this way and women responded in this way. But the more you read of these, the more you ask yourself, well, what sort of questions were they actually asked? So were women asked specific questions about the law that officials felt pertained to them in particular? Or did they just out of their own interest talk about those parts of law as opposed to others? And so I was starting to build up an interesting corpus of material that didn't just tell me a lot about how people had responded to learning about loss. It told me a lot about how different um, groups and, and, and people within what we you know, generally call the party state had tried to make sense of and conceptualize in their reports these responses and try to fit them into categories that had been set by the larger political discourse. And I think it was the work by Julia Strauss and Eddie Yu and others who have shown nicely how mass campaigns also created new categories of identity and sort of by ways of registration and also by way of the way people were addressed and how they were brought into groups or selected out to participate in certain kinds of campaigns and certain kinds of groups. This created new identities and new ways of thinking about identity. And those we then see in the way people are addressed in legal learning and how in turn their responses are categorized. So this, once you really start digging a bit deeper, um, it becomes really interesting because it tells you as much about people as it tells you about the way state officials are thinking and trying to make sense of their environment. So I guess a good lesson there for our researchers who are listening is the intellectual journey kind of not only continues as you start to develop your book, but sort of flourishes in many ways as you start to figure out what the bigger picture is. It becomes increasingly unmanageable and you realise <laughs> at some point you have to rein it in, um, which I found very difficult. Um, and so for me... This book is my attempt at adding a puzzle piece to this larger history of law dissemination, hopefully making a convincing case that 
law shouldn't be a side actor in the way we look at socialist China from 1949, but rather should be very much, at least on people's minds, as one factor that may have played a role, and not just individual laws making, creating, not creating social change, but also sort of a legal culture that people are potentially, not necessarily, but potentially embedded in, and that shapes the way they are thinking about this literally new society that they're living in. And I think ultimately, I look forward to seeing what happens now that this puzzle piece is printed and develops its own life and to see where there are many areas that can think of that this book can be developed um where does it apply where does it not it's a case study of Beijing and Shanghai so I'm expecting many areas in which this is going to look very different so I hope it contributes to a conversation I'd be very happy if it did that so one of the sections that we like to do on this podcast is something that, until we find a better name for it, is called Field Trip, <laughs> which is a literal trip through your field. Okay. Um, and it's a way to ask uh, scholars and practitioners of China where they think their field is going. So, like, is there a particular thread that you see that is coming through that younger scholars should be focusing on? Are there ideas for future research that you think would be really great? Within your research, was there a particular topic that you're like, oh, that would be a great thing to research in the future. I just can't do it within the confines of this book. So Aranab, for example, has a whole thing on, um, like, uh, he was collecting a load of information from one of our, I think, emeritus professors who was getting rid of a load of stuff that he can't use in this book. But he was like, ah, this is great for a paper or something later on. So one of the things I, I was um, collecting was... East German documents about China and I have a ton of them and I haven't quite yet figured out what to make of many of them um, because so we see sort of China in the classic diplomatic ways going in and out of um, GDR history but also in you know in ways that that are so mundane Dane that they usually don't figure in the way we write about China's engagement with other socialist countries. So I have, for instance, a lot of records from the Leipzig branch of the Saxonian State Archives on uh, China's participation at the Leipzig trade fairs, which is something I'm writing on right now. But as I was writing this, I realized I have documents on meals. I have uh, lists of what people ate, um, and, and it was a lot. And it was pretty, you know, it was incredibly uh, sumptuous for the fact that this was a state that was on ration coupons. And so you have this list of how much they smoked, how much they drank. You have lists of how many nails were used to set up the exhibition. This, this incredibly, hotel rooms, um, this incredibly basic stuff about the material that mention of Sino-Foreign exchanges. At the beginning I was excited to put this into the article, then I realized there was no space for it, and so now I'm, this is a project somewhere in the back of my head, how do I conceptualize this incredibly mundane, everyday, material universe of Sino-Foreign exchanges in a way that actually shows, you know, all of this too was needed, and all of this too shaped the experience of what we classically frame within sort of political and diplomatic history. So that's my big question mark right now. What do I do with this? And with I, the nuts and bolts, basic stuff um, that surely matters in some way. And yet I have no framework to really make 
make it work for me right now. And I guess there are two interesting points there. One is this trend towards studying China outside China. Mm-hmm. So Aranom Ghosh, among others, writes on this. Um, and I know more and more people, for example, are using Eastern European mm-hmm. archives, mm-hmm. either because Chinese archives are more difficult or because it gives the flip side mm-hmm. of a story. But also, I think Presented Devara is someone who talks about this quite well, that idea of taking the minutiae and the things mm-hmm. that we may not think matter, but actually give this sort of very decentralised idea of historical meta-narrative. Exactly. I mean, one of the things I found quite good fun, for instance, is the question who gets which telephones and which sorts of hotel rooms and uh, who gets what kind of car to pick them up. And this is not just about status. This is about practicality. This is about, you know, in that case, the fair office somehow trying to make this work efficiently. It's these small things that I think we have to find, as I said, have to find a space to write them in because they were central to the way people experienced uh, Sinophore and exchanges and participated in them and, and yet they really drop uh, very often from the narrative, which is all about ideas and about conversations and about actions, not so much about the context in which these happened and whether that actually mattered. Yeah. Um, So we have a quickfire round here, which Mm -hmm. um, is regularly pointed out to me is the slowest quickfire round that anyone has ever experienced. That's good. The idea is it's supposed to allow our listeners have more sense of how you came to your topic, and if you're not from China originally, how you became interested in China. Um, So it's called the Fairbank Five. And our first question is, what is your favourite Chinese food and why? Fish flavoured aubergine. It's just, there's this beautiful word, and I'm not even sure it fits, but it's scrumptious, it's comforting, it's just delicious. Uh, Your favourite place in China? Oh, there are so many wonderful places that are each amazing in their own way. As of late, I have to say, I really enjoyed spending time in Lanzhou, just because it's such a fascinating city. It has beautiful parts, but it also really reminds me a little bit of that socialist world that was meant to be created architecturally um, and you have this amazing contrast environmentally um, with different sort of different topographies and yeah so I think Lanzhou and also because I just spent a week there and had the most gorgeous weather blue skies absolutely no pollution and uh, 25 degrees when everybody else was going through a heat wave and Lanzhou Laomian oh yes and Yoromian exactly uh, your favorite Chinese phrase or saying so it can be a Chengyu, or it can be just like a little thing. People have done things from like mafan to like, oh, so yeah, or like, Mafan is great. Mafan, in fact, I remember when I was a PhD student at Heidelberg, we used mafan like a regular English word. Um, and quite like Luanti Batal. Somehow it expresses something that doesn't quite, I can't quite express in English. All over the place, mm-hmm. I guess, is a close. Muddled all over the place, just. Messy. This Luanti Batal. <laughs> yes, I often use that to describe my hair in the mornings if I come into work a bit dishevelled. Yes, or, or me, myself, if I can't quite get things together. Yes. A book that you've read recently on China that you would recommend to others? Secret Chamal says Red Revolution, Green Revolution. You're not the first person to recommend that either. I am happy to hear it. It's a fantastic book. Um, it's just stunning and, and a great read. Highly recommended. 
Um, and then your favourite class that you either took or taught that somehow changed your thinking about China? So I now teach a class which is which looks at the social history of Beijing and Shanghai in the 20th century. And the last session, somewhat fittingly, is on death and the city. And it's fantastic because there's so much wonderful research. Christian Henriot's book, but also many other pieces on the dead body. And when I taught this for the first time, it was an amazing class because the class taught me as much as I was teaching them, um, not least because it got very ethnographic in the way people were engaging with the text and the way they were thinking about dead bodies and the way they very openly said this was just something we hadn't thought about, you know, what, what would happen to coffins during wartime and, and how do you even conceptualize this? And they went out, on the one hand, slightly gobsmacked in a, in a way, slightly overwhelmed by the experience. Also, people were sharing personal experiences, overwhelmed by the experience, but then apparently also deeply impressed because I think over 50% of the class wrote on that particular week and they had a choice of five different weeks to write on and they all went for dead bodies and death. Um, and those were fantastic essays. So I think that one, because it was, yes, it was a class that in a way I set, but it became a class for all of us. And I really loved that. And I guess that is the perfect moment of being both an educator and a student at the same time. Yeah, it was fantastic. We There was no sense of one of us being the teacher. We were just sitting there talking, discovering things, thinking about what we had previously not known, how it would change the way we would frame how we think about social history. And it was great. Fabulous. Great. Well, Jennifer Alterhanger, thank you so much for being with us here today. Well, thank you for having me. It was great. Don't forget to subscribe to the Harvard on China podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you get your RSS feed.